an interstellar comet, and the search for life on Mars. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Astronomers have their eyes on a rare comet, zooming 100,000 miles an hour through our solar system. It's rare because it's coming from outside our solar system. The comet, named 2L Borisov, is the first confirmed interstellar comet. The Hubble Space Telescope captured stunning images of the comet. Scientists are poring through the data to figure out what it's made of and where it came from, and that information can help us better understand our universe. We'll talk with planetary astronomer Heidi Hamill about what we know and don't yet know about this incredible discovery. Then there's a lot of talk about life on Mars, but how do we actually find it? This week on I'd Like to Know, we'll chat with our panel of planetary scientists about the likelihood of finding signs of life on the red planet and where else in the solar system we should be looking. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. Boeing Starliner is go for launch. The private space company is poised to launch an uncrewed version of a capsule Friday designed to launch humans to the International Space Station. NASA is working with private companies Boeing and SpaceX to ferry astronauts to the station. Since the end of the shuttle program back in 2011, NASA has relied solely on Russia for rides into space. It's a critical test for Boeing to prove its capsule is safe for astronauts. If all goes well, Boeing will launch a crew of three astronauts as early as next year. SpaceX completed a similar test mission back in March and is working towards a safety test, followed by a crew mission sometime next year as well. For Friday's attempt, Boeing's capsule won't have any people on board. Instead, the Starliner will carry a dummy named Rosie, she got her name after Rosie the Riveter, and about 270 kilograms of supplies for the station crew, like food and clothes. Boeing is targeting a launch of the uncrewed Starliner from Cape Canaveral Friday at 6.36 a.m. Eastern Time. Be sure to follow us on Facebook for a live stream of the launch. Just search for Are We There Yet? podcast. Stay up to date on the latest space news. Visit our website at wmfe.org slash space. Give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at Space Brendan. An interstellar comet is zooming through our solar system, and the Hubble Space Telescope has kept a watchful eye on it. Comet 2L Borisov is the first confirmed comet to visit us from outside of our solar system, and astronomers hope observations of the comet can shed light on what else is going on outside our solar system. Planetary astronomer Heidi Hamill is one of those scientists keeping a keen eye on the comet. She joins us from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center to talk about what we know and hope to find out about this rare cosmic visitor. Hamill begins our conversation talking about Hubble's role in tracking Borisov. Well, the Hubble Space Telescope was aware of this comet, and uh, so they pointed the telescope at the, the comet and took the pictures. Now it's moving. Comets move very quickly in the sky, and this comet is no exception. It's moving with a velocity of about 100,000 miles per hour. So we do have to track with the comet's speed when we're taking the pictures with Hubble. And that means that stars, galaxies, other background objects are trailed in the images. So if you see a, a video from Hubble that's focused on the comet, you'll see what look like other things streaking through the background. And those are the fixed stars and galaxies. Why was the Hubble Space Telescope 
used to capture this image? Was was it the right telescope for the job? What Hubble is especially good at is two things. One, it's very good with high-resolution images at blue wavelengths, and so it got terrific images of the comet. Hubble is also exquisitely sensitive in blue and ultraviolet wavelengths. Those are not accessible to telescopes on the ground, and so the Hubble contributions at blue and ultraviolet are absolutely unique, and they help us understand what this comet is made of and what the processes are um, around the center of the comet, what we call the nucleus, um, and determine what what are the gases and, and, and dust compositions, the materials flowing off the nucleus. So obviously we have a picture of this comet, but what else do we know about it? Yeah, it's a great question. So here's what we know about um, Comet Borisov. First of all, we know it's there. We've been able to track its orbit since its discovery in August. And by tracking its orbit, we know uh, the path that it is taking through the solar system. And that orbit is what tells us that it's an interstellar visitor. It's not bound to our solar system. The orbit is what we call a hyperbolic orbit. It is not an oval or a circle like planets and comets and asteroids that are bound to our solar system follow. So we also know the comet is active. Uh, We know that it is um, emitting uh, uh, dust and gas from its surface. Uh, The technical term is sublimating. This material is sublimating off of the icy core at the center of the comet to form this this tail of gas and dust. Um, And we are starting to get our first hints of what the comet is made of, what is the composition of the ices that form that core or nucleus. So we're, we're really at the beginnings of, of what we're going to learn about this comet. Um, it just made its closest approach to the sun a few days ago and is now on its way back out into interstellar space. And we will be following it with uh, telescopes at, uh, until it is so far away that we can't detect it anymore. And this comet special because it's it's the first one from from outside of our solar system. The, our understanding right now is that this is indeed the first interstellar comet uh, that we've been able to track and follow. Yeah. Well, this is the first interstellar comet. Um, obviously, that is exciting. But what else has um, astronomers really, you know, locking their eyes on this thing? And, and getting really jazzed about about the discoveries that are coming from, from these observations. What's exciting about discovering an interstellar comet is that comets in our solar system are thought to be remnants of the formation of our solar system. They're leftover odds and ends that were not incorporated into planets. Now, one thing we've learned in the last decade or so is that there are thousands of planetary systems out there beyond our own. If you look up in the night sky and look at a star, there's a pretty good chance that that star has planets around it. So the question is, how do those planetary systems form and what are those planetary systems made of? It's hard for us to to make those measurements. Uh, We try and we do a good job. Um, But here, here we have a piece of another planetary system that has come to us. And we can study this piece of another planetary system and ask the question, is it like our planetary system? Is it 
different from our planetary system. I mean, and that's that's an amazing opportunity to have that piece of another planetary system come to you, <laughs> where you can use your telescopes close up to make these detailed measurements of that of the of its chemistry and its composition. I mean, how cool is that? That's amazing. Now you're only able to to look at the comet through these telescopes. You're not taking a sample of it or or anything like that. H- how do you how do you understand what it's made of just by looking at it? Yeah, we we call the technique remote sensing because we we, we you're right. We are not getting samples of this object. Um, the trick we use is a trick of light. Um, we don't look at just broadband light. We break light up into its component colors, all the colors of the rainbow, um, and not only the visible rainbow, but the rainbow that is bluer than blue into the ultraviolet and beyond, and the rainbow that is redder than red when we move into the infrared and the mid-infrared and radio waves. And one of the special properties of matter, of atoms, is that certain atoms and certain combinations of atoms called molecules absorb specific colors of light. They take that color of light out of the rainbow, and there's just nothing there. So when you look at the rainbow of light from, say, this comet, there will be certain colors that are missing out of that rainbow. And those specific patterns of missing light, um, they tell us what the composition is. And they can tell us what the temperature is. They might be able to tell us what the the pressure is of the material that's close to the comet. And so even though we can't take a piece of the comet, by looking at how light reflects from the comet, we can figure out what it's made of and how that composition might vary with time as the comet gets closer to the sun or further from the sun. So we can actually learn a lot about objects in outer space, even without touching them. Are you are you still collecting data on this, um, or, or do we know what this comet is made of yet? Yeah, there's a lot of data being taken right now, and um, most of the recent studies that I have seen published have been talking mostly about um, the amounts of material, and they haven't yet quite delved into exactly what that material is. I have been hearing rumors. (laughs) You hear a lot of rumors when you're a planetary astronomer, and the rumors that I've been hearing is that um, the material that we've been sensing so far seems to be quite similar to that of our solar system. And that in itself, I find pretty exciting. If that turns out to be true, that tells us that the planetary system this object came from is like our own in its basic composition. And I think that's cool because if we're asking a question like, is there life elsewhere in the solar system? Um, you know, the only life we know is the life here on Earth. And so if we think there's going to be life like ours, it's got to be in a solar, a planetary system like ours. So the hint that this first interstellar comet has composition similar to comets in our solar system, that that kind of that kind of ups the probability that there may be life like we know it somewhere out there in the cosmos. I find that very intriguing and exciting. Is that what scientists expected? Like, did we expect our solar system to be unique and other solar systems would be completely different? So seeing this comet 
come in with with kind of characteristics similar to ours. Was that a surprise to astronomers? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, (laughs) You know, at first, we always think that ours is the archetype for everything, right? Um, But when the first planetary, confirmed planetary systems were found, they weren't anything like our solar system. And we had Jupiters in so close to their planet stars or their host stars, they were inside the orbit of Mercury, right? That That's nothing like our planetary system. And, uh, you know, the more we learn about planetary structures out there, the more we realize that there is a huge diversity of planetary systems. Um, we look at disks around other stars, disks of debris, you know, just like clouds, of debris around other stars, and they're not all the same. Um, They don't have all the same compositions. And so there's no reason a priori to assume that all planetary systems are going to be just like our planetary system. But the process of science is, is that, you know, you can presume all that you like. Process of science is to go make observations, and so that that is where uh, this particular observation from the Hubble Space Telescope is so important, is that it is giving us real hard data about uh, other planetary systems. So now this is this is more evidence of what's happening outside of our solar system, which gives scientists a better idea of our universe at large. Yeah, exactly. I mean, evidence is what we use in science to sort through all our different models. We have, you know, you can model all you want, but until you get evidence to constrain those models, you can't tell which are just, you know, good ideas but fantasy from good ideas that actually reflect reality in our solar, in our, in our universe. Okay, so I have to ask the obvious question. Um, does this interstellar comet pose any threat to us here on Earth? This uh, this particular interstellar comet poses no risk to us whatsoever. Um, it is it's not gonna get it's not gonna get close to us. I mean, it's close on a cosmic scale, but but that's still you know hundreds of millions of miles away. It really is not gonna interact with us whatsoever. Okay, well that's very good to know. Um, <laughs> Now that we know that it's not a threat, um, can you give us a sense of scale? Um, How big is this comet? Do do we know that? Um, In terms of its size... Um, it's a it's kind of a garden variety comet, but but that's pretty big. Um, I don't like to just throw numbers out there because they don't mean anything to people. But to give a sort of a conceptual sense of scale, if you could imagine a football field, and then imagine another football field, and another, and another, and another, and you get to about seven or eight football fields in a row. That's about the diameter of this comet. All right, so it's it's big. It's big that, you know, if it hit the Earth, we would care. But it's not going to. So, I, you know, I'm just saying it's not going to hit the Earth. I mean, seven or eight football fields, that, that's big. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, we, we call comets big balls of ice. But, you know, I was thinking about that this morning. And that kind of gives people, like, they think of ball, they think of a basketball. Maybe we should be calling them interstellar icebergs or interplanetary icebergs, you know, like giant icebergs, like the size of Manhattan that break off of the ice shelf, you know, and just kind of make it rounder instead of like longer. Uh, That's kind of what we're talking about. 
Um, what's next? You're going to continue tracking this thing as it as it zooms through our solar system, and then it's gone. What's next? Uh, well, the, yeah. Well, I would say it's the end of the observations. We're going to continue this, to track this object with the Hubble Space Telescope and with other large telescopes on Earth for as long as we can. Um, we we don't just track it to watch it get fainter. Um, with with comets, um, they get um, he, when they get close to the sun is when they get warmed and that's when they form their their atmospheres and their their tails but as they move away from the sun they cool and so these processes that form the tails and the atmosphere they start to shut off and so we will be watching as this comet moves away to see how the how the comet turns off when does the tail disappear um, and, you know, will that allow us to maybe get a glimpse of its nucleus, the, the, actual, the actual interstellar iceberg itself um, that's in the middle of this cloud of dust and gas right now? That would be the goal. I mean, that would be the, the most perfect of all possible things is the, the, the comet would sort of stop emitting gas and dust and let that stuff all kind of float away. And then we'd be able to see the, that that nucleus, what is forming the the, uh, the comet, the coma, the tail. We'd love to be able to do that. I I don't know if we'll be able to do that or not. It just depends on um, you know how how fast it's moving, with how sensitive our telescopes are, um, you know, mixed with how successful our observations are. This is not the first. Um incredible image or discovery from the Hubble Space Telescope. It's been in service for decades. Um, kind of what what is its legacy and, and what's next for this space telescope that has so much discovery on its resume? Hubble uh, has been in orbit uh, taking data for nearly 30 years now. Uh, it's been serviced five times by astronauts. The last time was 10 years ago. And since then, it has been operating at the peak of its game. Um, everything's been what we call in space parlance nominal, which means good. Um, uh, we're hoping for many years to come with Hubble. Um, it is getting to be an old spacecraft. And, um, I, you know, I can't tell you whether or not some piece of it may not be working forever. <laughs> um, but we're going to try to get quite a number of years up there. Um, my hope would it would last long enough and robustly enough to allow us to use both Hubble and NASA's next large space telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, together because they are complementary telescopes. They they don't do exactly the same thing, and so it would be awesome to be able to use the two of them together. That that's what I am hoping for for Hubble. We've been speaking with Heidi Hamill. She's a planetary astronomer, and she's joining us from NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Heidi, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. You can take a look at the stunning image from Hubble on our website. Visit wmfe.org slash yet. Still to come, scientists are on the hunt for life on Mars. Where do we even look? And what's the chances we'll ever find anything? Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. There's a lot of talk about life on Mars, but how do we actually find it? This week on our segment, I'd Like to Know, we'll chat with our panel of planetary scientists about the likelihood of finding signs of life on the Red Planet and where else in the solar system we should be looking. 
I'm joined by Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida and hosts of the podcast, Walk About the Galaxy. Addie begins the conversation by answering this question. Is there life on Mars? <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. But maybe. it might be because we put it there. Oh, also. <laughs> okay. Well, what's some of the evidence? Um, what's some of the evidence that there might be life on Mars? Well, I mean, we've talked about planetary protection before, uh, so that's the idea that we don't contaminate other things. But a lot of the the spacecraft we sent to Mars have maybe had microbes and things like that on them. But the question of like, is there life on Mars that was there previously, um, maybe a long time ago, or maybe still currently? Um, that is the question of do we that's why we looked for mars as like a wet habitable place is did it used to have a lot of water because that means there probably used to be life mm-hmm. because if there's water there's life uh, always so this this is where the this is where the <laughs> she's saying this with a skeptical twinkle in her eye i am so yeah. what's the skepticism what? as Addie was saying there's a lot of evidence that there's a lot of uh there was water on Mars that it had a warmer, wetter climate a long time ago, billions of years ago at least. And all that evidence is from the rock formations we see. There's mm-hmm. a lot of like things that look like riverbeds and ocean delta, and deltas and things like that. And things like that. So there's abundant evidence that it had a thicker atmosphere, warmer climate, wetter climate. And we're like, well, that's a great ingredient for life. So it gets people excited about it. But that's kind of all we've got. Mm-hmm. There have been some a, a lot of search for some biogenic uh, molecules in the atmosphere, such as methane. Right. And that has been detected, but in very, very trace amounts. And it is not at a constant level, which is intriguing. Mm-hmm. So there's something that's like releases little puffs of methane. Mm-hmm. Don't let your mind wander <laughs> in the, too much in the cow direction there. Yeah. But uh, those little puffs of methane, very, very tiny amounts. And there are a lot of non-biological mechanisms that could cause that coming out with seasonal changes in, mm-hmm. the, in the current climate on Mars. So there's not really direct evidence in my mm-hmm. view that there was life on Mars. There's just a lot of this is a place we should look for mm-hmm. evidence, at least of past life. Yeah, the, the surface of Mars currently is a horrible, horrible environment for life, right? It's, right there wouldn't be any now, right? There still could be if you look deep, right? So there is there is some evidence that even though there is absolutely no water on the surface of Mars right now, there might be some subsurface water. There's definitely water like in the polar caps and there's definitely some subsurface liquid reservoirs up there. Right, right. And yeah. so if you have – right, and liquid water, of course, is the key to life as we know it at least – uh, and so if there's still some subsurface water hanging around, uh, it's conceivable that life still exists in those places, even though the surface is kind of scrubbed. And there's organisms like tardigrades, organisms that thrive in very extreme environments called extremophile organisms that might be able to live in these really cold, dry, mm-hmm. desolate places. Maybe they even like desiccate, they dry up for a while, but then can come back to life. So there's lots of like crazy organisms that we know about even now. Um, and that's why the right. field of astrobiology studies lots of extremophiles and life in extreme yeah. places. Mm-hmm. To be fair, if there is life on Mars, it's much more likely to be microbial microbial rather than Mm -hmm. complicated like a tardigrade or something like that. Although, you know, even these complicated things can uh, can Mm -hmm. do these crazy uh, uh, surviving things. So life needs to have water, but just because there's water doesn't necessarily mean there's life. For sure. Correct. That's what we're getting at here. The life needing to have water, of course, that's life as we know it. Right. Uh, So it's conceivable that there's some Mm -hmm. non- water-based life mm-hmm. elsewhere that's that's thriving without water. Um, it also needs energy. So you can't energy. just have water, right? So 
You need energy and some nutrients. Some raw materials mm-hmm. and a mechanism to enable chemical reactions to take place, which mm-hmm. is why a liquid such as water is great for that. I'm not super optimistic about life on Mars, certainly not extant life. Mm-hmm. And finding evidence for life from two or three billion years ago, that's a challenge. I mean, it's mm-hmm. yeah, you, hard enough even off on the Earth. How do you find these – first of all, how do, you, how do you find evidence of you know life now or evidence of life in the past? We don't. Well, you go there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. You have to go there with the, pretty sophisticated tools. The evidence for the oldest life on Earth are these features called stromatolites, which are – things that sort of look at first blush to somebody who's not an expert in this kind of thing like Uh me, like a rock. Uh And they're uh, basically ancient fossils of bacterial mats Uh of uh, three billion year old, three and a half billion year old life forms. And they've got certain characteristics that uh, when studied in laboratory setting, you can put that together and say, oh, that was formed by by microbes. Uh Doing that on Mars... Is that's a challenge. That's a tall order for the 2020 rover, for mm-hmm. example, to find that kind of thing. You got to know where to look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we up. look for we look for specific something like methane, maybe, or other specific chemicals that um, are produ- are more likely to be produced in the presence of life. Um, Voyager, uh, not Voyager, Viking had an experiment where it heated up some samples to try to see if they detected mm-hmm. certain respiration molecules, or something but like, like that. those are sort of non-unique observations. Okay. It, Mars was it the when it was warm and wet was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And so uh if life began at that time and started off then the climate changed, the atmosphere mostly went away, it cooled off, it dried up. It's had a long time as a probably dead planet since then. Mm-hmm. Well, if if Mars is not a good candidate to find signs of life, where should we be looking? Ooh, they excite. I mean, the people, the ones ex- people are excited about right now are Europa or Enceladus, places where they we know there are these liquid, salty water oceans mm-hmm. um, that potentially are uh, deep down. So they are, we know that they're liquid, and they potentially have a lot of energy due to reactions in the interior of the planets, and could potentially have life. And- Venus's atmosphere, kind of an interesting, intriguing place. Oh, Josh gave me the uh, the eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> What's yeah. your beef with Venus? Well. The surface of Venus is a very hot and miserable environment, 900 degrees Fahrenheit. I didn't uh, say the surface. Crushing atmospheric pressure. But as Addie mentioned, <laughs> high up enough in the atmosphere. Addie is an optimist, a serious she's, optimist. She's much more optimistic yeah. than I am, yeah. Uh, high, high enough up in the atmosphere, you're at a level where the atmospheric pressure isn't crazy, the temperatures aren't crazy, uh, there are raw materials there. But a liquid or a surface is a nice place to let things get together to sort Mm -hmm. of start biological reactions and build life. Doing it in the gaseous environment of an atmosphere seems challenging. Mm -hmm. For you, you're big. For me as as an expert on creating life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, our life-creating expert is Josh Caldwell. He's joined by his (laughs) colleagues, Addie Dove and Jim Cooney. They're planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida and host the podcast, Walk About the Galaxy. Thank you all for being here. Thanks. If you've got a question for our segment I'd like to know, send it in. Shoot me an email at arewetheryet at wmfe.org. Or find us on social media and drop your questions there. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week is from Abe Abaraya. Thanks, Abe. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org space. 
Never miss a show and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your phone or smart speaker. Subscribe to the Are We There Yet podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.